we're going to be jumping back into our Acts series. I'm going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Um, I've let the cat out of the bag already, and I've told you who we're talking about. But if I was to tell you that this morning, we're going to talk about a first century Jewish man, a man that was known for doing miracles, signs and wonders, a man that was known for being full of the Holy Spirit, a man that was known for his wisdom that people couldn't argue with, and a man whose wisdom put him in conflict with the Jewish leaders of the day, which ended up in his brutal, violent death. Who would you assume I was talking about? Maybe you would have assumed I was talking about Jesus. Maybe. But we're talking about Stephen this morning. But Stephen's life echoes and mirrors the life of Jesus, just in this short couple of chapters of the book of Acts. His life is an echo of Jesus himself. And Stephen, without ruining the story too much, he has the dubious privilege of being the first martyr of the church. So we're going to run through this story um, in a few little sections. We'll go and try and go through this at a fair pace. Um, and then I want to circle back and make a few reflections on what we've read. So there are four movements to this story. Um, firstly, seven are chosen to stir- serve, including Stephen. Then Stephen gets seized. Then Stephen makes a speech. And then we have Stephen getting stoned. So Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, seven are chosen to serve. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Um, which hold up a second right here. So we're in these, these first few years of the church being gathered, the first few years of these people being followers of the way of Jesus. And both of these groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, they were both Jewish groups, but they were sort of distinct um, ethnic and cultural groups um, within um, this body of Jewish believers. So Hebrews, they were the people who spoke Aramaic. um, That was the local language of um, Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area. They would have grown up in that area and that would have been their life and their culture. The Hellenists, they were Jews that spoke Greek and had maybe grown up somewhere else, maybe somewhere else um, in the Roman Empire. Um, And for all sorts of reasons, they might be back in Jerusalem. They might be there for a season or they might be there to live. You know, we know from the day of Pentecost that there was believers gathered from all over the Greek-speaking world there in Jerusalem. And we know on that day, at least 3,000 of them got saved. And so we've got this mix of different cultures and ethnicities. There was also maybe something happening at the time where... um, Greeks, um, Jewish um, people who spoke Greek would maybe they'd lived in different parts of the Greek speaking world and they'd moved back to Jerusalem um, in their latter years that they would be able to die and be buried in Jerusalem because they believed that when the resurrection happened, it was all going to be centered around Jerusalem and they, they would get there quicker if they were buried there. Some dubious theology going on there, but that might account for this disproportionate number of widows in Jerusalem. Um, and who are attracted to this body of followers of the way of Jesus. And the fact this this group of Greek-speaking widows is being overlooked, it kind of speaks to our disposition to tribalism, to prefer those who look and sound and speak a bit like us. You know, I'm going to take this as an oversight, as a blind spot on behalf of the first believers. But even those guys... Even the early Jesus followers weren't immune to a bit of accidental nationalism. It's a blind spot for them. The thing about blind spots is you don't realise you have them until someone points them out. And the least we can do is be like these guys, that when someone points out the blind spot, 
they respond and do something about it. They don't respond defensively. They don't counter it with a bunch of arguments. They do something about it. So it says this in verse two. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. I mean, like they're well known and people like them. Um, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we will appoint to this duty and we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. What a description. I want that description. I want people to say that about me. And Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So proselyte means he wasn't born a Jew. He later became a Jew and now he's fallen the way of Jesus. And they set these before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So all these seven guys that they pick, they're all Greek speaking, they're all Greek names. So we can see that from the text. But I love that they need these guys to be men of good repute, full of the spirit and full of wisdom to do the duty, to do the most mundane and practical task of distributing food requires that they're full of the Holy Spirit. You know, whatever we do, whether it's something that's, you know, that's spiritual, like preaching or reading the Bible or praying for someone or leading worship, or if it feels like a secular practice, like these guys waiting on tables, distributing food, maybe extend it to the places you work. Maybe you're a teacher, maybe you work in a supermarket, maybe you run your own business. There's no sacred secular divide in the kingdom. We get to invite Holy Spirit into every activity that we do. There's no jobs or tasks that are purely practical. We get to partner with him in the mundane as well as the majestic. And Stephen's among those who are tasked with this important job of distributing food to widows. And I love that this is one of the first things that the the early church organises and sets its hand to. It's one of the first things that the church is doing together in its history. In the first few years, it's already caring for the vulnerable and the least. And throughout its 2000 year history, the church has always been at its best when it's caring for the marginalized. For centuries, the church led the way in education, in healthcare, even in science. You know, really, we've got the church to thank for the welfare state for hospitals, for schools, and for universities. You know, we stand in this rich heritage. And I stand here today, and these guys are with me in this building, where we're gonna get to do some of that. We're gonna get to serve this community and this city. We're gonna put our hand to serving the vulnerable, to the least, to the overlooked, those that are in need within our own community. Like, in our church community, but in the community around us. You can't see, but there's a bunch of houses just the other side of this wall. There's a bunch of people that live here. We're gonna get to serve them just like these first disciples, these first followers of Jesus did. And I'm so excited. I'm excited to get here with you guys on Sunday and we'll see each other and we'll sing and it'll be brilliant. But I'm excited about what happens Monday to Saturday and the real practical difference we get to make in people's lives. It's gonna be great. On with the stories. We've got a lot to get through. Stephen is seized. Uh, Verse eight, Stephen, full of grace and power. Just every time his name comes up, there's good things to say about him. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of these uh, belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia. And they rose up and disputed with Stephen. That place, Cilicia, 
in, in modern day uh, Turkey, this is on the south of Turkey, um, and there's a town in Cilicia called Tarsus. If you were to think of a Bible character who comes from Tarsus, those of you who were read might think of them, the guy Saul. Saul of Tarsus, that's how he's described at various points. So this is probably why Saul lands in this story, because this is the synagogue that Saul attended when he was in Jerusalem. So that, I think that's why Saul's here. It's not too big a leap to figure out that Saul would be there. And actually, Stephen, as a Greek-speaking, Greek-named Jew himself, may well have been a member of this synagogue as well. So they disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. How do they know his face looks like an angel? How do they know what an angel looks like? I mean, I wonder if there's an echo of Moses here, where Moses goes up the mountain in Exodus and he meets with God. When he comes back, his face is glowing because he's been in the presence of Jesus. We're going to read in a moment that Stephen sees Jesus stood before him. And I wonder, even if before he's made this incredible speech, he's beholding the face of God. And he's beholding the face of God and that's changing him. But these guys, they're so offended. They have to make up some lies about Stephen because there's not actually anything they can pin on him. It says they can't actually argue with his wisdom. And the charges they present are this, that he's blaspheming and he's speaking against the temple and the law, saying that Jesus is going to destroy the temple and change the laws that Moses gave. It reminds me a lot of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount on this sort of like bonus beatitude that's tagged on the back of the beatitudes. Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who are before you. And Stephen certainly enters this lineage of the prophets in this story. And even his name, Stephen, it means crown or reward, like the wreath awarded to the victor at the ancient Greek Olympic Games. There's so many links, so much going on in this story. And as we move into chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says to Stephen, so are these charges true? What have you got to say? And over the next 52 verses, which we're not going to read, you'll be pleased to know, um, you, I would encourage you to read them in your own time. And, and it'll be, it'll, you'll have a great time reading this speech of Stephen's. Um, but this is the longest speech in the book of Acts. And it's a little different to the other gospel speeches that we find in the book of Acts. Stephen isn't necessarily offering these people the chance to uh, repent and come to Jesus. But it does follow a similar pattern where Stephen's main thrust is retelling the story of Israel culminating in Jesus. And Luke, who's the author of Acts, he wasn't an eyewitness to this speech. So it's, we've got it in a lot of detail. And again, I wonder, as Paul was stood there, if this was having an impression on him anyway. Because we know that Luke and Paul, they later, they hung out and they travelled together. And I've got no doubt that Luke and Paul would have discussed the story. So Paul, at this point, he's still called Saul. It's a bit confusing. If you're thrown by that, we'll get to it in the next few weeks. 
But I think this, has, this leaves an impression on, on, on Saul, who later becomes Paul. And like I said, Stephen retells the story of Israel, starting with Abraham, taking in Isaac, uh, Jacob and Joseph, and spends most of his time talking about Moses. The key point being that Moses was a prophet sent by God, but who was rejected by the people. He even then questions the validity of the temple itself, saying God doesn't dwell in, in houses made by hands. God's presence was always intended to be among the people, to be carried by them, and not in some controlled or contrived space. And he starts out quite polite. You know, he starts out by addressing these guys as brothers and fathers, but it kind of ramps up a bit. So his closing statement is this in verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, (laughs) uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And just as Stephen's got himself a bit more worked up as he's gone along, so the crowd has got worked up as he's gone along. He's saying that Israel has a history of rejecting those that God sends along. And history has repeated itself again and again and again that they would kill Jesus, the righteous one that God has sent to them. They would betray him and murder him. And that's enough to get anyone worked up. And so in verse 54, we get the stoning of Stephen. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, another compliment about Stephen again. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man at the right hand of God. So Stephen's staring into heaven. He's not looking up somewhere above his head. It's not some distant place far away or over there, but just the veil is removed from his eyes and he sees Jesus and the Father. Heaven's not far away, we just need the veil taken from our eyes. And this reference to the Son of Man, it's a direct link to Daniel 7 and Daniel's vision of a one like a Son of Man, a truly human one, a one that shows us what it means to be a human being, one who's given dominion, and power and honour and glory. And Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man far more than any other title. And what the Son of Man does, he comes up on the clouds and sits beside the Ancient of Days, God that has always been. And then you read a few verses later, he brings the saints to sit and reign with him. This is the story that Stephen is alluding to here. In verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They are literally putting their fingers in their ears and shouting because they don't want to hear what he's got to say. It's like a bunch of toddlers. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is where we find Saul in this story. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. 
In verse 59 and 60, these are two amazing parallels with things that Jesus says as he approaches his own death in Luke 23. Remember Luke 23, Luke and Acts are written by the same author, part of a two-part work. So these are deliberate callbacks to Jesus. Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You've got Stephen saying, um, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in verse 60, Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, um, when the soldiers are casting lots for his clothing, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I feel like he says that to me, over me, quite a lot. But, and, but Stephen's saying, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. They're both, even at the point of their own death, they're asking for forgiveness for the ones that are doing this to them. And then over in the first few verses of chapter eight, we learn a little bit about what Saul gets up to, about how he's going into various houses, dragging out people, putting them in prison. And it says that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And in this act, Stephen becomes the first martyr. And remember Jesus' words to his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight, when he says, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses. We've already heard multiple times, Stephen was a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. And here he becomes a witness. And the Greek word for witness is martyr. The same word that we get martyr from, that's what it means to be martyred is to die as a witness to Jesus. So Stephen becomes a witness who's been full of the Holy Spirit. But reading Stephen's story got me thinking. So here we have this stand-up guy. He's got a good reputation with people. He's full of wisdom and he's full of the Holy Spirit. He's doing all the right things. He's putting himself out to help widows, to help those that can't help him back. He's full of grace and power. He does great signs and wonders. And again, we're told he's wise, he's good with words. People can't argue with him. He's doing all the right things. Yet this story ends in his violent death. Like surely Stephen's lifestyle, his self-sacrifice, his kindness, his wisdom, that would have earned him the right to some sort of blessing or other, right? Instead, it's led him to be killed at the hands of the mob. I mean, what gives here? You would think that Stephen's righteousness would be a path to living his best life now, that God would see his good works, his wisdom, that he's sowing all these good things out and somehow that would reap some benefits for him. But friends, we're selling the gospel short. We're missing so much of a good chunk of what Jesus talked about. If we've seen that, that good works and that life with Jesus is a pathway to an easy and blessed life. You know, it can be easy to read certain sections of the Bible and assume that if we adopt all the correct behaviours, we will get a certain set of results. But even within the biblical narrative, even within the biblical story, there's a counter-narrative going on to this, what we call the retribution principle that calls this out as, as not quite right. I, I mean, think of all the Psalms where David says, God, why do the wicked prosper? but I'm righteous and look at my life. I mean, David's definition of righteousness may be questionable at times, but he's got a point. Why do the wicked prosper? I think about the book of Job where Job's the most righteous guy to ever lived and he loses everything and his friends say, Job, you must have sinned because as we know, the only reason why your life would look terrible is because of sin in it. And the only reason your life would be good is because you're righteous. So you must have done something wrong. And God shows up and he says, 
That's all nonsense, guys. Yeah. You've got no idea what you're talking about. And by the way, have you seen the hippopotamus? It's one of my favorite bits in, in Job. God answers Job from the cloud. He's got all these great things. He says, by the way, I made hippos. Anyway, or you've got Ecclesiastes, where the teacher goes one step further. and He says, life is like a vapor. It's real and it's there. And you feel like you should be able to grasp it and take a hold of it and control it and make it do what you want. But it's just going to slip through your fingers. So get on with it. Enjoy life and serve God anyway. That's Ecclesiastes in two sentences for you. But definitely read it. It's a good fun book. And Jesus himself had some pretty radical ideas about what it meant to follow him. Luke 9.23 says this, If anyone would come after me, that means to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He says this five times across three different gospels. So he obviously means it. Luke 14, Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. Just like you would sit down and count the cost of a construction project before you set out on it. Life is not going to be easy with Jesus. It's going to cost us something. In fact, our favourite or maybe least favourite promise from Jesus in John chapter 16, Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. Amen. Band back up. <laughs> like, it's good news, right? It doesn't feel like good news. So in the midst of all of this, what does Jesus actually offer us? He doesn't offer us the good life. He offers us a life that costs us something. But in the midst of that, why would we follow Jesus? Well, he offers us life in all its fullness. He offers us freedom. He offers rest to the weary and to the heavy laden. He offers us life eternal. He promises not to leave us as orphans. He promises to be with us even until the end of the age. And that's the key to all of this. He promises to be with us. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with you. And Jesus was with Stephen in that moment as he stood before the council. Why was his face shining like an angel? Because he was looking at Jesus. In that moment when the crowds have their stones in their hands, raised and ready to throw, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is with him even at the very end. And that is enough. You know, when Jesus offers us his rest in Matthew chapter 11, Sam spoke about this a couple of months back. He offers us his yoke and his burden. It's not a ticket to an easy life, but it's an opportunity to walk with him, to be connected to him. And there's a sense of walking side by side with Jesus in step with him, pulling together. You know, Paul expresses some of these themes in Romans 8. Sam was talking about another part of Romans 8 earlier today. And I happen to think Romans 8 is one of the most beautifully and densely packed chapters in one of the most beautiful and densely packed theological works in all of the New Testament. In Romans 8.35 it says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting from Psalms there. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, Paul doesn't say we won't face tribulation, distress, persecution or danger, but that they can't separate us from God's love, which is given to us through Jesus and his presence with us. And there's no false dualism here, just to be clear. Paul doesn't say that persecution and trials and tough stuff, they're a marker that we're getting it right either. And material wealth and a healthy family and a good circle of friends are all brilliant things to enjoy. They're, not, they're just not a reward for walking with Jesus. They just happen to be the circumstances we find ourselves in and the shape that we carve for ourselves in the world. But like Paul says in Philippians, we can learn the secret of contentment. We talked about this in our Philippians series. We can learn the secret of contentment with a little or with a lot. If instead we can take hold of the all-surpassing wealth of knowing Jesus. But what does that mean for us today? Are we saying that life with Jesus is offering up ourselves to death? Should we be expecting disaster at every turn? Should we just fail to get our hopes up that breakthrough is ever going to come? Well, we don't live in a world where we face the death penalty for confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, there are some parts of the world where that's true. But for most of us, say here in Manchester, that's not the case. And neither am I asking for a show of hands as to who's ready to die for Jesus tonight. That's not what I believe the Lord is asking us to do. Jesus is not asking you to literally give up your life, but he does invite you to lay it down for him, to die to yourself, to die to the attachments that we hold on to, like money, position or power, to say that nothing is too much for you, Jesus. And that in the midst of this, I believe that he would make himself known to you. And as much as Jesus would want to make himself known to you, we've got to commit to being ones who open ourselves up to his presence. And not just in this gathered space of worship, half an hour on a Sunday morning every week isn't going to cut it with the rest of the world that we've got to go out and live in. Not to say I don't love these times. Absolutely adored this morning. Boosie, Andy, thank you so much for leading us so beautifully and for entirely working in a bunch of themes about surrendering to Jesus because he's worth all that we have to give. So not just in this gathered space of worship, but in the quiet stillness of our own lives, we need to learn to be familiar with his voice, with his whisper. And that leads us to being able to discern the presence of Jesus wherever we happen to find ourselves. You might notice on this stream when you're listening, when things get quiet, you can hear this little buzz. There's a little buzz going on in the background. And now I've probably ruined any more streams for you. Um, but there's a little buzz going on in the background. And when things get loud, you can't hear it. So it's in the quiet moments you need to like, learn to tune in. Tune into that buzz. And when it gets loud again, you'll be able to hear it. Don't worry. If you tune your ears to it, you'll be able to hear it can learn to be attentive to him, but it takes time and it takes the practice of sitting with Jesus. Now, I know the days when I set Jesus at the center are the days when I feel more hopeful, more aligned, more attuned to him. 
the simple act of even carving out 20 minutes at the start of the day in the morning to sit with Jesus and be aware of him, of him for me, that's transformative. I find myself better disciplined, better equipped to take on whatever the day has for me when I've become conscious of Jesus with me. And if I go a few days without it, I find myself more anxious, more easily shaken, more irritable, um, more prone to losing self-control in other areas. And maybe that's one step you want to take this week. Now, I, I realised that for me, learning to sit with Jesus was going to take some time and some sacrifice. So I, I went to learn from someone who I knew was good at it, who I knew was good at sitting with Jesus. I went to his prayer school and I learned and I had to put it into practice. Let me tell you, it didn't feel different straight away. But as the months rolled past, a bunch of people said to me, John, you seem different. There's something different about you. I don't know what it is. What's different? It's the sheer fact that I'd been sat with Jesus, spending more time with him, making intentional time. And not just, you know, from being a little kid, I always knew that quiet time is important. Have your quiet time, have your quiet time. We've, many of us may have grown up in a church culture where that is drilled into you and that's a beautiful thing, but no one told me how yeah. to do it. I would love to take, if, if you were like, John, just tell me some things I can do to sit with Jesus. I'd love to spend several hours talking that through with you. But let me tell you, if you want a simple three-step process to spend some time with Jesus, go in a quiet space. One, open your Bible, read a psalm, read it out loud. Two, pray the Lord's Prayer out loud. Three, be quiet and listen to Jesus. You might find it helpful just to say his name, Jesus, just to still your heart and your mind. Those three things can transform your life if you're prepared to do them every day. And you might not feel different straight away afterwards. You might not feel different in a week's time, but as the months and the years roll by, your life will change. Change my life. And today I wanna say to you guys, with you guys, I surrender to Jesus, to his will, to his ways, to following him wherever he goes. Because whatever life brings my way, whatever it takes, he is worth it. And if I can know him with me, if I, he can be part of this journey with me, if I can walk in the way that he's leading me, I can go anywhere. I'm not volunteering to be a martyr, but knowing Jesus is with me is enough. And he is so worth it. He is so worth following. He will change your life if you will allow him in. Maybe you don't know this Jesus that I'm talking about, but you want to know who he is. Well, then we have prayer teams available. Any moment now, they'll be jumping onto Zoom and you can connect with them at vinelife.co.uk forward slash prayer. They would love to pray with you and introduce you to Jesus this morning. And for everyone else, um, wherever you are, maybe if you're watching at home, if you're free to, why don't you stand up with me and we're going to spend a moment praying. Maybe there are things that we need to lay down for Jesus right now. Maybe it's hopes or dreams or ambitions. Maybe there's some unhealthy patterns in your life that you need to lay down. Maybe some things you're doing, ways that you're walking, 
that aren't good for you. Things you're messing about with, things you're watching on the internet, things you're thinking about and spending your time and energy on that just aren't good for you. Jesus wants to come and be with you in every moment that you would know the joy of being with him. So I want to pray. Jesus, we open our hearts to you. Would you come and make yourself known to us? In new ways and familiar ways, come and make yourself known to us. Just be kind to us and be really obvious and really present in this moment right now, God. Lord, that we would get familiar with you. We would get familiar with your presence, that we would tune in to what it means to be with you, to know you with us. That like Stephen, we would be able to stand before the crowd and tell of your goodness. That we would be able to face the stones if they come our way. That through the ups and downs of life, through the really exciting, brilliant stuff that we get to walk through with you, and for the challenging, troubling, confusing stuff, Lord, in every part of life, would you let us know that you are with us? We open up ourselves to you, Jesus, and we say you're worthy of it all. You can have it all because you give us you. You give us yourself. Come make yourself known, Jesus. Come make yourself known.